Greetings. You're listening to the Bonnie Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Chris Smith. Whether you're a grizzled old salt, pining for the days of wire rope halyards, or a greenhorn, wondering what the hell a dolphin striker is, this is the podcast that seeks to fill the need for everybody's third most favorite pastime. That is, talking about sailing. All right, welcome to the Bonnie Boat Sailing Podcast. This episode will be hitting the interwebs on Friday, August 10th. Uh, Last episode, Ryan and I wrapped up the story of our 2015-2016 trip down the ICW uh, from Virginia to the Florida Keys and back. Uh, So if you're just joining us, or if you've been listening along, uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, And today, I'm very psyched to have an interview with Brian Rolfe. He's a young guy uh, sailing around the Western Caribbean aboard his 27-foot Albin Vega Tarka, and he is bound for the Panama Canal, the Pacific Ocean, uh, Polynesia, and ultimately a circumnavigation if everything goes to plan. Uh, So needless to say, uh, Brian's a really interesting guy. Uh, He's got some big plans aboard a small sailboat. You can check out his internet, uh, internet stuff at The Adventures of Tarka on Instagram and Facebook, uh, and he has a very well-produced series of videos on YouTube, but, uh, but I'll let him tell you about what he's up to. Uh, I had a great time chatting with Brian, and I hope you find our conversation interesting. I give you Brian Rolfe. Let's uh, let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, if you uh, why don't you just give us kind of the bird's eye view? Uh, where are you now? Uh, where are you headed? And and why are you out there sailing? Yeah. Okay. Um. Right now I'm in Bonaire, so I've been here far too long actually. Um. My I was on my way to Panama, and I was planning to do the Pacific this season actually, and I kind of got caught in Bonaire because the weather between here and Panama is actually notoriously difficult and. There was no weather window, so I was stuck here for like a month. And then I started doing some diving and found out how beautiful it was here. I'm like, you know what? I'll just do the Pacific next year. So that's why I'm still in Bonaire, but we are leaving soon. Um, My plan is to go around the world. Uh, My immediate goal, though, is to get to Australia. So I think 2019, we'll cross the Pacific, get to Australia, and then we'll look at the plans and look at the money and see if we can keep going from there. And, uh, yeah, that's where I am now. Very cool. Um, and what is, so that passage to Panama, um, you know, I think a lot of people kind of focus on getting down to the Caribbean or sailing around in between the islands, but is that, is that downwind or is that, can that be pretty gnarly as well, that, that passage to Panama? And what's a weather window look like for that? (laughs) Yeah. So the, the passage is downwind, which is mostly a good thing, um, the issue with the passage from Panama, uh, from sorry, from Bonaire, the ABCs, or from the Eastern Caribbean to Panama, is that the trade winds kind of pile up there in the Western Caribbean, and you get some really, really gnarly seas. So the wind's not too much of an issue because it's downwind, but you get some like four or five meter swell. Gotcha. And uh, on a small boat, it's not a lot of fun. In fact, so my boat has been around the world once with its previous, not not its most recent or- owner, sorry, but uh, the Canadian couple that sailed her around the world said that the passage from Grenada to Panama was some of their most difficult sailing they did. So 
it's like the Caribbean Sea. Like people think about it, like oh, well, it's just the Caribbean Sea. It's not like crossing the Atlantic Ocean or Pacific, and it's true. It's nothing like that. But some of the biggest seas can be found there if you don't pick the the right weather window. Gotcha. And so when you're preparing, are you kind of looking? Are you looking at uh, wind forecast mostly? Are you kind of think? Are you thinking about swell? Is that if is that the major kind of concern for that trip? Yeah, if I'm going downwind, I mean the two kind of go hand in hand. But like if I'm going downwind, it's mostly swell that I'm worried about. Uh, if I have to beat into the wind, though, it's 100% the wind because, I mean, the waves too are important, but like beating into a strong wind is just not trying miserable. To do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've done enough of that. And, uh, right on. <laughs> yeah, it's no fun. So, so mostly swell. Uh, that's the thing that can knock, knock a boat over like mine. Uh, the wind can, can get up pretty high. It can always heave too, but a big wave can roll me over. So I don't want that. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'd say not. Um, so I, uh, I actually found you got you, uh, on Instagram originally and, and kind of got backed into your, your, uh, YouTube videos from there. Uh, and they're, they're great. I very much enjoyed watching them. Um, and, uh, I've noticed you reading sailing to the reefs in, in some of your videos. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk about is, is Motissier an inspiration? Are there other books or people who have, uh, inspired you to, to shove off? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, I, I have been reading that book a lot of my build. It's kind of, I, I mean, in my videos, it's kind of, it's kind of a little ironic, you know, but, uh, I actually picked up Motissier after I bought the boat. So he was never really an inspiration to me. And I kind of found out about him like amazingly after the fact, uh, the way I got into sailing was, you know, it was always this thing in the back of my head, like, oh, yeah, I'd love to live on a sailboat and sail the world. But, like, that's not something people really do, right? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, honestly, it's going to sound a little bit uh, cliche, but I actually found Delos um, oh, years right ago. Yeah, yeah. Like, like four years ago. And then when I when I actually got a job where I actually made money, and I was like, you know what? Like, you know, they're doing it on a big boat, but they're proving that people do this. Like, this is something you can do. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to like, you don't have to wait till retirement to do it. And like, I can do this now. And these people are young. I'm young. It's like, they're having a blast and they're kind of like making it up as they go and figuring things out as they go. And so honestly, and I know it sounds dumb, but like, uh, Delos was a huge inspiration just because, you know, like there's people doing it and you can do it too. And, uh, there's some other sailing channels that, that I started like following too, that just people, you know, problem solving as they go and not having the expertise necessarily when they started. Um, but in terms of books, uh, the only, I read a few about small boat circumnavigation. So, um, what's the, uh, Maiden Voyage? Oh yeah. Um, yep. I read Maiden Voyage. That was one of the few I read and she was a huge inspiration. And I know there's been younger female sailors since then, but like, it's amazing. Like, you know, an 18 year old woman can sail around the world and it's like, she, she had some sailing experience, but yeah, it's like, you know what, like pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah, it's really badass. And like, but with, with proper planning and the right boat, like, I'm like, I think I can do this. So cool. So that was really what, what got me, got the idea at least. Nice. Yeah. And actually kind of a funny story. Um, my wife and I took, we have a small, uh, Pearson, Pearson aerial. Mm -hmm. And we took her down the ICW a couple of years back and we were actually tied up in Fort Pierce next to Varuna, uh, Tanya Abbey's boat. Oh really? It was cool. That's it was amazing. It was very cool, and uh, it's a tiny boat, man. I mean, it's you know our boat's twenty six foot, and I think I guess the Contessa's a twenty six footer as well. But it is. It's a small twenty six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have a very a very low cabin from what I've what I've seen. Um, but I always I actually really wanted a Contessa twenty six. You know, I'm like you know what, I'm like this is a very proven boat. 
even if it's, it's a small 26 foot boat, but I couldn't find one, not in my price range. But uh, yeah, 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 what she did on that boat is amazing, and uh, yeah, it's crazy. Like, I mean, I admire you, you two on a Pearson 26. Uh, so, I mean, to, like for me, it's been me and myself on the boat for pretty much this entire trip. And that's that's a lot easier than just two people. I mean, like two people really changes things on a small boat. Yeah, yeah. So what's now? So is what's that adjustment been like for you? Yeah. So um, that's kind of apparent on my Instagram and my blog, of course. But YouTube videos haven't caught up to this. But uh, yeah, I mean, we haven't done a ton of sailing together. Just like little things, like trips between islands. Um, but it's it's you know you just you learn to like kind of. Uh, <laughs> To work with each other and try to to use the space together which is tough for me to learn a little bit because things that used to be storage spaces now become people spaces and uh oh, there's just been some adjustments to make is that what you were asking i'm sorry yeah sure i, I mean it's just i guess sailing sailing by yourself and sailing with a with a partner is, is they're kind of two two different things yeah totally and when you're sailing i think the biggest thing honestly was uh decision making and when you're sailing by yourself you you know, you're making all the decisions and there's no, like, there's no discussion that happens and there's no compromising that happens. But when you're sailing with someone else, you'd be like, well, you kind of got to plan together, like where you want to go and how you want to get there and when you want to leave. And I think that is probably the single biggest change for, uh, for going from a single handed to a, a crude situation here. Did, um, did having a, a kind of a second voice take some of the stress out of some of those decisions or is that, uh, not the case? <laughs> Um, I don't think, I don't think that that's really the case. Uh, I think it's, when it's my decisions, you know, like, it's just me I have to think about. So, yeah. like, if I make, if I do something stupid, I only have to think about myself. But now I, honestly, it's, like, a lot harder in some ways because there's two people involved and, and there's things I didn't have to worry about before that now I have to worry about. Like, people, like, I always see, like, people doing man overboard exercises and I'm like... Well, I don't need to learn that. My <laughs> man overboard exercises try my best to grab onto the boat or the line that's hanging off the end or hope my harness works. Or yeah, something. exactly. You got five seconds and that's it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's a lot more, it's actually a little bit more stressful when you have to think, like, uh, I don't know, it's just a different thing where you have to think about someone else falling off the boat. And, like, that's terrifying. I totally identify with that. I, I know with my wife Ryan and I, uh, that was one of my big fears, and certainly, uh, that was my one of my big stressors too. Was just worrying about how you know, we, you know, I had, I had two of us to take care of. So, yeah, exactly. And it's like, uh, I mean, you're responsible if if you want to call yourself the captain, then you're responsible. I mean, we we try to be a partnership in this, but like, you're responsible for them. And, and I don't know, like I, um, maybe you'll get to this, but I, like I always did my watches when I do overnight passages and 20 minute like sleeping intervals where I sleep for 20 minutes, I poke my head out, I check for anything that looks like I might hit and then I go back to sleep and I just do that the whole night. And uh, it sounds terrible, but it's really not that bad. And what's much more terrifying for me is I go to sleep for two hours and I wake up and there's no one on the boat but me. Yeah, and it's just yeah. like, oh my God, like, I don't know when that happened and what do you do? And yeah, it's like, it's, that's like, it doesn't get any worse than that, I don't think. I mean, I think that's the worst case yeah, scenario for sure. Pretty much, I think so. So, um, well, let's get away from that. <laughs> okay. We don't yeah. need to dwell on that <laughs> too much. about happy right? things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Right. <laughs> trying to Trying to sell the, uh, sell the dream here. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you said you, you, were, um, you were looking for a Contessa originally. So were you, were you looking for a particular type of boat or were you looking for a boat in the Caribbean or were you just 
just looking for any boat in any place when you were, were started shopping. Yeah, okay. So when, when I started shopping for a boat, like, I still had a job and I still had money coming into the bank. And uh, so I had my eyes set on something a little bigger, actually. But I always liked the idea of a small boat. But the West Sail, like the classic West Sail 32, mm-hmm. yep. was like my dream boat. Like big and heavy and I didn't care that it was slow. Like I don't need to go anywhere in a hurry. And that was my dream boat. But I, I couldn't find any where I was living. I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time. And there was one there, but it was expensive and it wasn't a great example. And and then, like, I became less and less uh, interested in my job. Let's put it that way. And I'm like, you know what? I, I had, like, a four-year plan to save money. And then I'm like, you know what? Let's cut that in half and then just make it a smaller boat. Like, you know, like, like these women are sailing around the boat. Very young people on 26-foot boats. Like, I can probably do it on a small boat, too. And so I started looking into my small boat options, and there was a whole list I had, and the Contessa 26 was one of them. And, you know, the Alban Vega was always on my mind, because I knew about it from the stories about it, like Berserk, and uh, the solo circumnavigation of the Americas that Matt Rutherford did. Yep, yep. So I knew about it, but I'm like, you know what, that's an ugly boat. Like, I, did, I was not attracted <laughs> to it at all. And, like, I know it's not a big deal. Like, the, the aesthetics of a boat don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but it does when you have to, like, you have to go do it every day. But when you're living on it, you don't see the aesthetics, you know? Like, you're not, you're on the boat. Like, everyone yeah, else has yeah. to look at it. You don't have to look <laughs> at it. But actually, like, it's it's grown on me. And so the Alvin Vega became an option, like, the, the only reasonable option because it's a very affordable boat. You can find very cheap examples of these boats that are in good condition. And the reason I went to the Caribbean, I actually did not want to go to the Caribbean at all. I wanted to be in the Pacific and just shoot off across, you know, like maybe cruise down to Mexico first to get some like some sailing experience and do some some offshore work for a little while and then just go straight to the Marquesas. Uh, sorry about the background. Ah, no worries. If you can hear that. A little um, uh, motorbike or something. <laughs> yeah, we're really, we're on a mooring here and that's like 100 yards from shore. Which is, nice, it's a really nice. unique situation. It's beautiful here, but we'll get back to that. Um, so the Caribbean was just the where the boat was you know like the boat at the right price with the right gear that was ready to go it was in the Caribbean I'm like you know what maybe that's like a really good way to kind of like learn my basic skills and and get adjusted to the cruising life and sailing and then I can go to the Panama Canal not a big deal and so it kind of just was where the boat was honestly and the boat at the right price at the right time was in the Caribbean cool well that's I I, I think it's a cool way cool way to do it too I, I kind of wish that my wife and I had thought of it uh because then you, you kind of you skip all the in-between parts and you're in the in the Caribbean it's a uh, it's a good <laughs> it seems like a good good way to do it yeah I mean I don't know I've never done the ICW but I mean um, I know a lot for a lot of people it's a means to, to an end to get to the Bahamas or something or to the Keys and to the Caribbean eventually and uh starting there was like cheating you know it's like <laughs> yeah I, I I get a I get to be in paradise without doing any work um, well, it's day a, one, I think so. yeah, it's, it's a, good, a good kind of cheating. If if, if it's a good kind case. of cheating. <laughs> I mean, I I'm glad I did it that way because there's a lot of like as you know, there are a lot of aspects to boat ownership that are no fun, and if you can do those not so fun things in paradise, it makes it a lot better. Yeah, no, that that sounds pretty good. Um, so so you were working in Portland. Uh, you, you were watching the Delos videos and you, you get it in your head, you're going to go off sailing. So was this like was this something that was kind of out of character for you? Have have you you know, in the past, have you made kind of unconventional choices or did this kind of come out of left field? I think if you ask my parents, they'll be like, it came out of left field for <laughs> sure. They they didn't see it coming at all. They were, there was just like a train that hit them 
like square on they were completely shocked um but people i worked with knew quite well you know like i i talk about for the for the two or three years leading up to it it was pretty much the only thing i wanted to do and so i think my friends my close friends definitely knew about it but in terms of like what i've done in my past like i think it's very out of character because you know i went to like i mean i went to school for four years for my undergraduate and then i went and went to grad school for five years so like definitely like on a career path there like to do something very stable and and as if you ask my parents something meaningful um and then i i kind of thrown it all to the side at least maybe not thrown it away but it's definitely thrown off to the side for now and i'm doing something completely different because i i never did any sailing really before i bought tarka and uh so i think from that from that respect it's completely out of left field well, that's, I think that's pretty cool because I know I'm sure there's a lot of people who watch your videos and, and, and listen to podcasts who, who are kind of in that position of, of in a job and maybe they don't love the job. But uh, I think it's neat to hear that, you know, you're just just a few a few big decisions away from uh, from sailing off, you know. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I think a lot of people overthink it. Like, I mean, I, I definitely did my research. I'm not saying don't do your homework, but people, I think, overthink it. And there's a lot of other issues that people face in different situations but i think a lot of people get in a trap where they're just like oh i need to do this first or this needs to be this way or i need to make make the boat perfect in every way before i ever untie the lines and then people never do and the reality is a lot of that stuff you can figure out as you go um, and there's always a way to finance it like uh i mean i shouldn't say always i can't speak for everything but like you always work within your budget to make it happen if it's something you really want to do yeah, no, I, I, I believe that as well, for sure. So, um, Cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, your passing, uh, passage planning process. Um, what is, uh, you know, let's say, I know I was looking through your Instagram feed and, and, and the blog, and it seems like you, um, you guys recently did uh, a trip from Bonaire to Curacao and then back. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, that looked pretty gnarly. How was that? <laughs> yeah, that was a fun one. Um, so about passage planning, we, we did that trip for, for my girlfriend so she could, uh, she could have some experience, you know, offshore sailing because she, she'd done some sailing, but never in the ocean like we're going to be doing for a long time. So it was like, okay, it's your practice run to Curacao and back. And that way you get the really nice, depending on who you ask, you get the really nice downwind sail and then you get the miserable beat back. And so. <laughs> So, the, I mean, the good thing about where we are, the path, the weather planning is super easy here because it's we're out of the hurricane territory and and the weather here is super predictable. It's, it's just trade winds all the time, so 15 to 20 knots, and, and the seas are always like 5 to 8 feet. So, like, we look at the weather. We're trying to reduce the amount of wind we have to deal with, but any day is kind of a good day to go, to be perfectly honest. Um, but on the way back, there's like a really... We made a mistake in the sense that she had to be back here by a certain date, which in sailing is something you never want to do if you can avoid it. And uh, so we had to leave on a certain day, and we weren't too worried about it because the weather's like pretty predictable. But I mean, the seas are pretty big that day, probably like nine or ten feet waves that we were seeing, and the winds were just, you know, like they're normal for trade winds, like 20 plus knots. But beating into the wind for 14 hours and seas like that and winds like that just really, it really will make you want to stop sailing. Like, like it was supposed to be a test for her. And I think we both came out of it kind of like, what are we doing? <laughs> but the good news is we don't have to do, well, I should knock on wood, but we shouldn't have to do a lot of sailing like that if we keep going west. Right. Yeah. Keep, keep with the trade winds, I guess. 
That sounds like That's a plan. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was I was clicking through your your blog and I found uh, an article you wrote. I guess you have so you have. Why don't you actually talk about that real quick? So you've got um, you've got your YouTube channel, you've got your blog, and then there's a you've got a third website going about uh, passage planning or pa- passage prep. Okay, good. I can definitely talk about that. Um, so yeah, my you found me on Instagram. That's kind of where most of my following has been. Um, it's where I'm most active because it's really hard to edit video and upload it when you live on a boat and you're constantly changing location. It's pretty easy if you can like base yourself somewhere and then you can just kind of turn into an office for a little while. But but for me, it was like, okay, I got all this video footage and stuff, but I, I can't get to it right now. I just don't have the time or the power or the bandwidth to upload anything. So I'm like, okay, I'll get to it eventually. So Instagram was my main thing. And the blog was always updated because that's kind of like what I share with friends and family is like, this is actually what's happening present time. So anytime I make a passage, I do a blog post. And then more recently, when I kind of got myself stuck in Bonaire for an extended time, I was like, you know what? I didn't financially plan for this extended stay. So let me see if I can find a way to make some income. And since I don't make income from my YouTube channel because that money gets donated to charity, um, I needed something else and I wanted to make it unrelated to my blog so the two could be separate entities so I did start a yeah a website called uh, about passage planning it's called uh, prepping for voyage and the idea of that site was to it's an affiliate site so I don't know if you're familiar with the concept a little bit but go, yeah go ahead and, and spell it out I... yeah so I mean it's like one of the more common ways that people try to make a small amount of passive income and live a nomadic like travel kind of life and so you write articles that are hopefully helpful, like you should make good content. And so my goal was to teach people how to do different things on the boat, like how to climb the mast by yourself, or how to do some passage planning, or what kind of gear you should have in your ditch kit. And and like everything I write there is genuinely how I feel about things and honest. But you're also trying to sell things in a way, so you link to part products if you mention them. And then if, they, if a user clicks on that product, it takes them to Amazon, and then there's a tag associated with that click and if they buy something within 24 hours you get a commission on it and so like honestly that wasn't very successful but i wanted to experiment with it anyway just to see if it could happen and that way i can kind of keep the cruising kitty topped off but honestly like it's it's a very difficult thing to do and be successful with unless you find uh, the right niche or you're in at the right time so yeah yeah so honestly i'm not really focusing on that anymore like it's kind of like you know what i'll just leave it there and if something happens with it that's fine but i definitely don't advertise it anymore gotcha well i gotta tell you so this whole thing where you can uh decode weather facts with your laptop from uh from a, a like a small ssb receiver completely blew my mind i'd never i never heard of anything like that i mean i've heard of weather facts um, and I've heard of people getting grib files, but that's a pretty interesting way to get weather offshore. Um, so I would, maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I, a lot of people don't know that you can just, like a $100 uh, shortwave receiver, you can download Yeah, the weather charts that different government organizations broadcast uh, over the uh, single sideband channels. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't remember how I discovered that you could do that. But like in my mind, like, you know, you're reading all the, I don't know if you've read the, the Voyager's Handbook and like all the cruising planning texts, like the, the books that you read before you go sailing like mm-hmm. on a trip like this. And everyone's like, yeah, I mean, in the old days, everyone had an SSB and like a, a modem so you can decode the signal 
and print out you can print out like actual weather faxes like it was a fax machine on your boat yeah yeah <laughs> it's like well, you really don't need any of that you just need the audio file and then your computer is perfectly capable of decoding it and it's you know it's it's still like a very reliable way to get information sent around the globe so you send power not powerful enough radio at the right time of day you can bounce a beam to the other side of the planet almost and if you can receive that signal then it's an analog signal but you can decode it with some simple software that's free on a laptop and you can get your charts that way you just got to be able to record the audio and that's it so you just need a shortwave receiver you don't need a huge antenna to broadcast the signal because you're not broadcasting right right so it has the advantage that it's it's really cheap <laughs> um it has disadvantages in that like it's it's not always reliable because uh, it depends on the quality of the signal you get, which depends on the weather, and it right. depends mm-hmm. on where the sun is and all kinds of stuff, and a lot of interference issues too. And grid files from satellite are definitely a more reliable way to get weather, so I definitely want to say that. Um, but it's also very expensive because you're paying for satellite time. So, But, I mean, it's still interesting. I think that people don't know about it because people are using satellites more and more to get their weather. Um, but it's it's good to have as a backup if you if nothing else. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty cool. And and so do you know? I don't know much about weather facts. I mean, I fooled around with Gribs a little bit, but um, so is is that forecaster? Is that like a human forecast that you're getting as opposed to just like a, a computer model with the that you get with the Gribs with the? Uh, in other words, is is the weather facts like an actual forecast made by a meteor meteorologist? So you should double check me on this, but I, th- I think weather faxes do get interpreted by meteorologists. Uh, grid files are just raw model data, as you know. Um, so there's different types of weather facts charts that get that, so they're broadcast all day. Depends on the organization, but there's like different charts they broadcast, like a surface analysis, and they'll do uh, just wind and waves, like you would get in a grid file. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them are, are and they do have some analysis. Like you can see. They'll like mark the monsoon trough or where the ITCZ is, and they'll uh, they'll like indicate uh, potential storm systems or developing gales, things like that. Things that are definitely not going to be marked on a grid file, but are up to your interpretation. And there's also, of course, text forecasts that get broadcast on the weather facts that are definitely interpre- interpreted by a meteorologist. Um, but honestly, I haven't had to use a lot of these tools on passage because my passages haven't been more than four or five days. And in four or five days, I was, I got lucky where like a boat would pass me, and we'd just start chatting on the VHF, and then they'd be like, "Hey, you want the weather?" I'm like, "Yeah, I want the weather." <laughs> and so it's like it saves me some effort and time if if a boat passes, which but you have to get really lucky for that to happen. But but it, it has happened. So so now, what was that? Uh, what was that passage? Your uh, was that your longest passage to date? Four to five days? Yeah, it's it's really short. Yeah, about four days, and uh, um. I, yeah, so four days from Grenada to Bonaire, mm-hmm. and uh, I saw one other sailboat on that passage, and he was faster than me, so he caught up to me, and we chatted for a while, and then he passed me. Um, but yeah, that was my longest passage to date, but it's probably one of the shortest from here on out. Yeah, yeah, well, that's that's cool. So, did when you're getting ready for for a trip like that, or for the you've got the uh, you know the Panama passage coming up, um, do you experience you know anxiety or nerves or anything? thing in the, in the run-up yeah i think it's healthy too <laughs> so i <laughs> if not you're gonna go do something stupid um i definitely do experience some anxiety but i don't think it's in a bad way like 
a lot of times I'm just happy to finally leave an anchorage. You know, you're, you get stuck someplace for whatever reason, and then like, oh my god, I'm I get to go sailing again. And, and at first you're kind of like, yeah, there's a lot of anxiety about it. Like, oh well, is this ready or? Is my engine going to crap out on me at the worst possible time? Or, like, did I remember to do something? And and other than that, though, as long as I trust the weather, then I'm pretty confident the boat will take me where I point it. So, cool. But I think, I, yeah. yeah, some anxiety is a good thing. It, it keeps you on your toes. Sure, sure. Um, so what do you think has been the most difficult aspect of, uh, of living aboard and, and your trip to date? Oh, the most difficult aspect? Um... That's a really good question. Um, it's not like the things you would think, I don't think, like sailing specifically. I mean, the sailing has all been kind of easy, honestly. Like, There's not a lot to do most of the time when you're sailing unless you want to go an extra point one faster. <laughs> then you can always find something to do. Um, but I think the most difficult thing is just, it's hard to say now because it's been, been over a year and so a lot of the adjustments that I've had to make are behind me and it's just my life now. I think when I first started, it was really difficult to adjust to to not having all the luxuries that I had when I lived on land. And things like fresh water at a supply level where you can take showers on a regular basis. And uh, and things like, um, I don't know, power. Like I can, I have, I have some power in my battery banks, but I can't, I can't do much. Like I can't charge much at night other than like a phone or a tablet. And and just like adjusting to the la- the lack of resources that we're kind of all spoiled by when we live on land, it took a little while. Or internet, like oh my god, finding good internet is like a huge challenge. You can always be connected most places you go, but finding like bandwidth to do anything meaningful is a much different challenge. So I think I think things like that, like the adjustment from from a, a life of luxury in the Western world that we all get to have, to trying to use only like a gallon of water each day was a big adjustment for me gotcha gotcha um is there is there kind of a silver lining to that at all have you kind of come around to kind of enjoy that the uh the simplicity of all that yeah i think so i think in many ways it makes you appreciate the the basic things a lot more and you 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 don't think you don't take things for granted as much as you you did before and and uh i don't know you stay busy too trying to like keep all your resources topped off so it gives you something to do if nothing else yeah it's like a, a full-time job just getting water <laughs> to the boat it totally is like <laughs> like uh, i i've been very fortunate in the eastern caribbean that i catched all my water so i had um I, my boat's designed in a way where i can do that very easily because it rained there but here in bonaire it doesn't rain at all and uh so i yeah you got to ferry water to the boat and that's that's a big job that takes like a whole morning for me to to get all the water from where I need to get it to the boat, and uh, and you know people take people sit in a shower for five minutes. It's twenty gallons of water, and I'm like, <laughs> it takes me hours to get that to the boat. So just like I really, I really do appreciate those things now, and I think, I think that's at least I think that's made me a better person. But I mean, when I get back to land, I promise you, I'll be taking long showers oh, probably yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the first couple of weeks at least. <laughs> so uh, you said uh, the boat has a, a rain, I guess, catchment system. Is that something you put on, or is that something one of the previous owners put on? No, it's just, well, actually, yes, it, it, in a way it is, because the normal Aben Vega had only a one twenty gallon tank in the bow for water, mm-hmm. and the Canadian couple who took her around the world in the 80s, they installed two more water tanks um, in the cockpit lockers, so one on each side, mm-hmm. and those are each 20 gallons. 
And when they installed those, they they've put a port. A sorry, they put a deck axis um, to them, and it's right. And I don't know what you call it, the combing, uh, the the channel. Oh, I should know my sailboat terminology, but that sounds it, sure. That sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. It's uh, but it's in a place where the water from the whole boat basically flows to the stern, and then off. So I just dam up a couple spots on my uh, my railings. And then uh, it all flows into, I just open those ports and it just flows into those two tanks. So those two tanks I can fill with rainwater and that's 40 gallons of water. And if I needed to, I could just pump it to the bow tank and then fill it up again. So I can't catch water in the bow tank, but I can always transfer it there. So, And it rains a lot. Like, I mean, I shouldn't say that because it doesn't rain here at all. But in the Eastern Caribbean, like, I never had to buy water anywhere I went for an entire year. It just was all rainwater. And it was... It was fantastic. Cool, cool. So, so you carry sixty gallons of water. Is that going to be so for the the trip to the Marquesas? Is that what is that two gallons a day, something like that? Does that sound right? Yeah, that's, that sounds right. Um, <laughs> when I was by myself, it was no problem. Like sixty <laughs> sixty gallons plus another ten or so in jerry cans. It's like yeah, it's plenty of water plus like an extra thirty days in case something goes horribly wrong. You know, um, but with two people, it's it's still enough water, but it leaves us less buffer room on the other side. Like if somehow we we have a really terrible navigation issue or we get caught adrift for some reason or there's just no wind and a 30-day passage becomes, I don't know, a 60-day six, passage. But then we're in an emergency situation. We, we probably, if we ran out of water, I mean, we'd leave the boat. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, we don't have any other way to make water. And uh, I've thought about a water maker but that brings in a lot of complications and it's also it's a lot of money because it's not just a water maker you got to finance but you probably need more power to run it which means more batteries more solar yeah yeah and so we we haven't even explored that option at the moment and uh it might rain but in the south pacific at least not in that that region's not really known for getting a lot of rain and even if it does you know the boat takes on a lot of salt water from from just the waves so we probably wouldn't be able to collect water uh, I mean, I'd have to devise a system. It could be done. Yeah, um, yeah. But I don't know if we get enough rain anyway. So, but I think the water we carry, as long as we don't lose a tank, like as long as there's no major like loss of water, then we'll be okay. But if we lost 40 gallons of water because of contamination or uh, a hose clamp broke and it all went into the bilge, that would be unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um, yeah, I got a buddy. This is kind of a non sequitur, but I got a buddy who uh, just kind of found a free project boat and uh it had a diesel powered water maker on it i've never seen anything like it wow yeah it's pretty huh. it, was, it was from like the 70s i think it was pretty wild uh, i mean that's a great way to do because what I, what people do in the caribbean is they run their diesel generator to run their electric water maker yeah so. exactly so just kind of skip skip the middle band <laughs> yeah exactly it's more efficient yeah so um are there any other kind of uh Modifications or preparations you, you've made to uh, to Tarka for in preparation for that big Pacific crossing. So a big reason I bought Tarka was because she's already done it once, and that meant that in many ways she had been modified already to do the crossing. So the water is a big thing. Like if those water tanks weren't added, it'd be a much bigger challenge. Um, but I've made some modifications to make things safer. Um, I've replaced all the rigging. I've uh, I've got brand new sails on the boat. Um, I've added like AIS receiving. I don't transmit, but at least I can see other ships. Um, I added a life raft. So like for a long time, I was like, you know, I could just use my dinghy, but the reality of using a dinghy as a life raft is 
is almost impossible. Yeah. <laughs> it's very questionable on a small boat where your dinghy's like folded up and deflated. It's it's gonna be like you're gonna be sitting there twenty minutes inflating your dinghy as your boat's sinking probably faster or you're in a really bad sea state. Um, what else did I do to the boat? I mean, like, I've done a lot of little small things and systems upgrades. Um, and the only major project I'm tackling right now is I want to add an inner stay. So, oh, cool. Um, yeah. Because, um, yeah, the Vegas is a masthead sloop. So it just has the four stay and I have a rolling sail, a furling sail on the, on there. And that gives me a big Genoa, which is great most of the time. But when you're in a storm condition, I have no way to hoist a storm jib. And, you know, I've looked into all kinds of options to do it, like, around the furled sail, blah, blah, blah. There's, like, there's a lot of options there. But I think, I'm like, you know what, I just want a dedicated storm jib, and I'll just make an interstay for it. So cool. I'm going to yeah. do some reinforcing on the bow and make sure the deck can handle it, probably tie it to the bow to make it really strong, and then have a removable interstay, probably made of Dyneema, okay, yep. that I can just tie off when I'm not using it. And then and then hang on a sail when I when I... God forbid I need it, but like you never know, and having it would be a nice thing. So, so you think so that's a go ahead. I, well, I was gonna ask are you, so are you thinking of running it almost all the way forward, or are you thinking of running it kind of like halfway between the uh, like a like a cutter kind of interstay? So, I pretty much, I mean, pretty much all the way forward, it's gonna be, and the reason for that is. I don't want to get too much like sail, sail design. I don't know much about it, but the reason for that is it needs to be close to the top of the mast where it's installed. If I don't want to install running backstays, right, and I don't. Right. And so that's the major constraint. And the other constraint is the deck too. Like if I run it more like a cutter, then the deck has to be really strong where I attach it. Or like because my plan right now is to run it through the deck in the anchor locker and then reinforce it on the bow. That way, the I bow gotcha. is one of the. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So if I did it in the V-berth, then I'd have to, if I wanted to reinforce it on the bow still, then it has to go through the V-berth and you have this cable in the middle of your sleeping area or storage area. Yeah, yeah. Or you really got to do some major, like, uh, you could do like a cross beam to the, uh, to the hull and that would also work, but it's a lot more work and it, it wouldn't make sense because I'd, I'd have backstays too. It's just, it's more money, it's more work and, and I can't really argue that it would be better, so. Yeah. Nice, nice. Well, that sounds that sounds like a, a, a fun project. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's the right word. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dyneema, I've actually I've never worked with it, but I've I've always wanted to kind of play around with it. it seems like a, it seems like pretty cool stuff. So, yeah, it's great. I've I've seen I've met some boats who who all their rigging is Dyneema, and I'm like, yeah, that's nice. Like, <laughs> I don't think I'm ready to do that yet. I'm mostly, yeah. You know, like if you have your knife in the wrong spot at the wrong time and it comes to your stay, like there's a lot of advantages that to Dyneema, and it's much easier to work with than uh, stainless steel uh, wire is. So, so I think I think it's probably the future, to be honest. Maybe a modified version of it, um, but it's still more expensive. Stainless steel is still cheaper. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's switch gears here. I know part of what you're doing uh, is raising funds and awareness for uh, the Coral Reef Alliance. So that's correct. Where um you know where does your interest in in reef e- ecosystems come from, uh, and how'd you get hooked up with uh with the uh, the Reef Alliance? Yeah, really good question. Because uh, when I started sailing, that wasn't the case. Um, I I mean the the fundraiser wasn't something that came into fruition until halfway through where I am today, and uh, yeah. So my interest in coral, you know, I've always been like a really big proponent of conservation and. It's, it's it's always really hard to watch 
what we do to our planet and and no one really wants to take responsibility for it because we're all kind of contributing in small little ways and and uh, we can easily blame single nations but we all have a part to play and coral reefs unfortunately are kind of at the front line of all this like uh, we might not experience the effects of sea level rise or rising temperatures for quite some time but the coral reefs have been experiencing it for the last 30 years or so and what really like got me to so I should say the reason I I did this while I was young while I went sailing now and, and not later in life and a big part of the reason for doing that was because if I waited another 10 or 20 years when I had more money in the bank and was retired I wasn't sure the coral reefs would still be around at least definitely not how they are today yeah yeah um, like we've already lost 50% of them globally in the last 30 years and it's like who knows what it's going to be like in another 30 years and so I'm like you know what I really want to see these things before they're gone and I want to try to share it with people too so they can at least you know like these these places exist and they're important but I didn't really put two and two together where I'm like well you know what maybe I can turn it into a fundraiser and when I was in the Grenada I was just on my boat one night and when you're on a boat you're always like well at least me I'm always like looking for movies to watch and things to do and when you when you meet other cruisers you kind of like trade movies and things um because you don't have internet you don't have netflix available so i I don't ask where the movies come from but you know i have them sometimes (laughs) and and, uh chasing coral was one of them and i hadn't seen it and i don't know have you seen chasing coral i have not actually what give give us the uh the review here so you should definitely watch it um it's 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 basically it, it documents kind of like some film crews um as well as some conservationists and some biologists. And they're basically documenting major bleaching events that occurred, uh, and I think it was 2014 or 15. And they also talk a lot about like the history of coral die-off and what bleaching events are, and they tell you about the science of of what's going on and what it means when coral bleaches. And, and this is, it's, like, it's very eye-opening in, in very sobering ways because, uh, I mean, people don't see these ecosystems because... They're underwater, and we we don't we don't really work well underwater without equipment. So, and and it's something that you kind of have to go out of your way to see. But like uh, these ecosystems are more diverse than the rainforest, and you know, like they make up twenty five percent of all fish marine fish species depend on coral reefs. Even though coral reefs only make up one percent of basically the ocean uh, uh, like uh, landmass. So they're hugely important. And uh, yeah, so Chasing Coral like kind of highlights a lot of that. And they do it in a very beautiful way and also a very touching way. And if, if people want to learn more, they should definitely check it out. It's on Netflix. It's free. Free on Netflix, at least. Um, and it's made by the same director, I think, who made uh, Chasing Ice, which is where the name comes from. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So Chasing Ice was about the melting of the ice caps. Right, and right. Chasing Coral is about... Uh, the loss of the coral reef. So that was like, you know what, like I, I'm doing this and I'm doing it because I want to see the reefs before they're gone, but maybe I can do something to actually give back a little bit. And uh, I was like, maybe I can raise some money for, for this, for a conservation group that's working to protect reefs. So I looked up some different charities and I found, uh, the Coral Reef Alliance was one of the best in terms of money actually going to the effort of protecting and, re- and working on conservation efforts. And so I, I sent them an email and asked them like if they'd be interested in the partnership. And the partnership is really just me using their name and working with them to uh, raise money for them. So the goal was to raise $1 for every mile I sail. 
And so far I'm in debt, so that means I raised more money than miles I've sailed. I've sailed 1,300 miles and I think I owe double that. So before I'm done, I either, I, I gotta sail at least that, but when I cross the Pacific, I'll eat, eat up a lot of those miles really fast. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping to raise about $10,000 because that will, that's 10,000 miles across the Pacific. So, so I mean, it's just my way, you know, I'm, like I want to do something and it's not fair for me to just enjoy this for myself. And so I want to, I want to give back and, and at least spread some awareness. It's like less about the money. The money is important, but it's more about people being aware that there are problems and there are ways that we can address them. And, and organizations like the Coral Reef Alliance that are, are are doing real things that can actually make a difference. So now are they involved in like in prop- propagating uh, corals or are they, are they doing awareness? Are they doing a little bit of both? So they do a little bit of that. They do a little bit of coral farming. Excuse me. Um, they do a little bit of coral farming, but they also do a lot of work with communities that are around these coral reefs. And a lot of that is about education and how to make, like how to teach people that they can benefit from the reefs in ways that don't involve their destruction. Because a lot of the destruction is climate change, and that's the biggest threat for sure that coral reefs face. But they face other threats too that it doesn't help. Like it just makes a bad situation 10 times worse when you have like overfishing or uh, you have runoff from agriculture and uh, you have a lot of other issues. And so they, they do a lot of education because, you know, the people who are going to solve these problems are the people who are still young now. And so they, they try to make, they try to, they try to work with communities to make it in their best interest economically to preserve the reefs that they have around their, their um, mostly islands. They mostly work in Pacific islands, but, um, they also do some work in the Caribbean as well, I think. So I think in that way, I mean, they do some coral restoration as well, but I think they're trying to work more with people and the impact of people than going around uh, planting coral. Cool. From what I understand. I might be wrong, so don't quote me on that. Fair enough. <laughs> but uh, no, I think that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it seems good. Most, I mean, you know, with the exception of people who are, you know, dynamiting for uh, for fishing, but even in that case, people are, you know, people got to eat. But uh, you know, most people want to, uh, you know, want to behave you know, responsibly towards the ecosystem, and it's just kind of a matter of aligning incentives. And a lot of times, those incentives, it seems, are probably not not aligned. So it seems like that's a, a good way to attack the problem. Yeah, I hope so. At least, I mean, I think that was a very optimistic view you gave. Like, I really <laughs> hope people, I really do hope people are like that, and I, I like to believe they are. And it's not like they want to go out and club seals or something. But, uh, <laughs> with exceptions, I'm sure. But I'm sure there are people who love clubbing seals. But <laughs> <laughs> With exceptions, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. But un- unfortunately, like, it doesn't... It's just, yeah, progress, unfortunately, has come at a, a great cost. Yeah. And, and we're seeing it in the oceans first, which is um, pretty sad. Well, cool. I think that's I think that's a, a good a good mission, kind of mission statement to have there. Uh, so do you guys do any uh, spearfishing? No, um, not here for sure because it's not allowed. Okay. But uh, um, we would, but probably only for lionfish. Um, lion, I don't know. Do you know about the lionfish? Yeah, I was, that was actually my next question. Um. <laughs> yeah, so I personally haven't done any spearfishing. Um, I don't think Nusa, my girlfriend, has either. Or maybe she has. I might. I shouldn't speak for her. But, oh, she has. Yeah, she has for sure because she's done some, they call them lion hunts. Cool. Where you go around yeah, and you yeah, kill yeah. lionfish. Nice. And it sounds terrible, but for people who don't know, lionfish are a terribly invasive species in the Caribbean, and they cause 
they cause a lot of problems, um, sadly, because they have no competition and nothing wants to eat them. And uh, so people go around and they organize these lion hunts where they, they try to spear as many lionfish as they can and get them off the reefs. And they're actually a pretty good fish. Um, yeah, I hear that. I've never had them. I hear that's good eating. It's pretty good eating and uh, eating, excuse me. And uh, sorry, the motorcycle. Yeah. Let that go by. There's a thing here in Bonaire where people really like, you wouldn't think of it, there's like a biker club. Like, like, well, like what you would imagine in America, like a biker gang. Nice. And they, and they, they love to like go down the main boulevard and just rev their engines <laughs> in the middle of the night. And I don't know, I don't know what that says about them. Like, I, I have no idea. Yeah, we, we get, a, we're in Virginia and we get a lot of what we call Bubba trucks. So big jacked up oh, pickup no. trucks. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, they have a tendency to wake up, uh, my wife and I have a little, 13 month old baby sleeping in the next room oh so. no that's terrible because that just yeah so the, bu- <laughs> the bubba one. trucks have become uh, less we don't appreciate them as much <laughs> oh no yeah yeah i'm really glad i don't have to deal with that yeah. um, i mean i'm very happy for you <laughs> <laughs> fair enough but i don't envy you right now <laughs> it's good stuff it's good stuff <laughs> okay good um yeah i'd love to you're doing the interview so i won't interview you again, but uh, <laughs> So I wanted to kind of jump in and do, I've got some like kind of rapid fire random questions here just from, uh, from scrolling around the, the, uh, the interwebs. So, uh, you had to deal with a clogged head. What's, uh, what's the deal with that? Oh, maybe that should have been my answer to the question about what was my, uh, <laughs> most difficult experience, my most miserable, at least for sure. Yeah. And you know what happens on, if you buy a boat someday, you're going to have a clogged head and I think you just got to get it out of the way sooner than later. And, uh, yeah, you know, it sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> there was, it was, we were, I was sailing down to Grenada and I had made it to, uh, uh, Kiriakou, which is part of Grenada kind of, and the head got clogged, but it got clogged in a, like the, my, my, uh, my system's designed in a way that probably wouldn't fly in the U.S. There's no Y valve. It just goes into a holding tank and then that holding tank goes out into the ocean if the seacock is open. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has a holding tank, um, but it got clogged below the holding tank. And so the toilet wasn't clogged. I could still use it, but I'd be pumping whatever was coming, whatever I had eaten into a full holding tank, which would cause all kinds of bad problems. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a really fun. Uh, yeah, anyway, my bucket, my bucket on my boat became uh, much more useful all of a sudden. There you go. <laughs> and, uh, and finding that clog was, I mean, it took me a week to, to actually work, work up the courage <laughs> yeah to let you work on the problem. and uh you know like finding that leak was a lot of fun because you know you you hook you disconnect the lowest point like at the seacock and you're like okay well nothing's coming out and then you move up slowly along the tubes and then surprise like, surprise there it is <laughs> very nice yeah that's right so uh let's see what else here so you got rid of the guitar what's up with that uh i got rid of the guitar because i added crew to the boat so <laughs> so now we we have a ukulele. Ah, good, good, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, like okay, that's actually a good point. Whenever on a boat my size, if you want to add something to the boat, something else has to go off. Yeah, fair enough. We're we're pretty much at capacity, so we can't have everything. Yeah, we had to move the guitar. We had, we brought a guitar on our trip, and we had to move it every time you want. If you wanted to sit down, if you wanted to lie down, you know, you had to trade places with the guitar. So <laughs> cool. Well, I want to be. I want to be respectful of your time here and I really appreciate the time you've taken um, but just to kind of close uh, you said you're headed across the Pacific you see you're headed towards Australia 2019 um, what's kind of the best case scenario for you uh, how, you know if everything goes well where do you see yourself in a year or in, in two years 
Yeah, the best case is we have a really good time crossing the Pacific and the money doesn't run out and we keep going and we go all the way around. Um, that's the best case scenario. But, you know, like with sailing plans, like what does everyone say that like you should write them in the sand at low tide because in reality they're going to change. And they always do change and I never thought I'd be in Bonaire for this long. So we might find somewhere like on the way to Australia or in Australia where we're just like, you know, we love it here. Let's spend more time here. Um, and I think that's kind of what this is all about. Like, you can do a three-year circumnavigation if you absolutely want to, and avoid all the cyclone seasons. But in reality, you're gonna you're gonna be looking back and be like, man, I really wish I spent more time in that one place. And so most people circumnavigate in a much longer period of, than three years if they really want to enjoy it. And I, I think that's what it's about anyway. Like, if you want to circumnavigate, that's fine. You can go tell people, like, yeah, I went around the world on, on a boat. Isn't that cool? And it is cool. But I think you only get one life to live, and I think it should be more about the experience and less about the bragging rights you'd have at the bar later. Cool. Well, I think that's, uh, that's, a, that's, a, good, that's a good summation there, a good place to end it. So um, thanks so much for your time, Brian. I know it's, I know it's not easy to get, uh, to get all this arranged on a boat, uh, but I very much appreciate it. Uh, appreciate you sharing your thoughts with me and um, real quick why don't you just plug where where can people go to find um, find you on the interwebs yeah so on, on if they they just search anywhere sailing Tarka I think they'll find all my social media so on Instagram I'm adventures of Tarka on YouTube it's the adventures of Tarka my website's the adventures of Tarka.com and my Facebook is the only kind of black sheep in the mix and it's Tarka adventures <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, I made I made these accounts a long time ago, but if they if they search Adventures Tarka, T A R K A, they'll find everything. And uh, yeah, no, I actually want to thank you for for doing this. Like, um, I know I know you're kind of just getting started here, but it's still really meaningful for me, and it, and it made me feel really good that someone wanted to actually hear about my story. So I appreciate that. And the time's no problem. I am getting angry looks about dinner. I think. Cool. Well, there's, there's two there's two bowls of food ready over here, but uh. But it's no problem at all, and I, I really do appreciate awesome. well, you doing this. Thank, yeah, thanks so much, Brian, and enjoy your dinner. Say hey to Nusta. Nusta? Is that how you say your name? Nusta. Yeah, I say it wrong all the time, and I've... <laughs> so, so Nusta, yeah. Cool. Say hey, and um, yeah, yeah, I wish you all the best best of luck, and I, and I look forward to uh, following along. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, you too. Actually, I want to ask you, um, are you still sailing? Like, do you still have cruising plans, or are you guys kind of settled down for now? Uh, we're settled down for the time being. Uh, there's there's three of us now, and Firefly is uh, is a little small. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but I'm looking forward to getting. You know, we're on the Chesapeake Bay, so I'm looking forward to getting the family out in the Chesapeake Bay. In the, oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, in the, in the near future. So, hey, good. Yeah, I wish you the best of luck with your podcast. And uh, yep, yeah, uh, have a good night, Chris. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Brian. Alright, there you have it folks, Brian Rolfe and the Adventures of Tarka. Thanks again to Brian for taking the time to chat. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed listening in here. You can find Brian at the Adventures of Tarka on YouTube and Instagram, Tarka Adventures on Facebook, uh, and on his website at www.theadventuresoftarka.com. And there you can find his links to his fundraising efforts for the Coral Reef Alliance as well. and since we spoke, he has indeed left uh, Bonaire for Curacao and points west, so he's on his way. Um, 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, do me a favor, uh, leave me a review and a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to tune in uh, in two weeks on August 24th for my interview with Emily Greenberg, a.k.a. Dingy Dreams. She is sailing around uh, the east coast of the United States aboard her Pearson Ariel, and she's had some, uh, some pretty cool adventures and, and good stories to share. So that'll be coming up in two weeks. Uh, until then. <music>